Liz, would you like to offer a, a definition as you see it with regards to weak and strong artificial life? I don't want to offer a definition on that. I actually, that's one question that I remain agnostic on, which Dick Gordon pointed out in the last Biota Live conversation. In my paper on artificial life, I, um, you know, address the question and say some A-lifers believe that their creations are alive, which I take to be the strong A-life position, and some don't take them to be really alive, but, um, you know, respect them for simulating or emulating particular processes that living systems do, and that's good enough for them. So I, as a philosopher, I'm agnostic on that question, and um, it seems like there are a lot of strong intuitions one way or the other that I'm more interested in hearing about than in taking a firm position on right now. Would you like to start, Dick? Well, why don't you call William in? He's online here. He's got some strong opinions on these things, I think. Strong <laughs> Okay, tell me the question again. Okay. Uh, I guess the question is how to distinguish between the strong A-Life program and the weak A-Life program. Um, well, for me, the strong A-Life program pretty well equates to wet artificial life. Uh, I am skeptical that um, what we're doing in computational artificial life, that is software, can reasonably be considered to be alive as compared to biological systems. Mm -hmm. um, the reason for that is largely related to the fact that Computers are essentially deterministic environments, and uh, you know they're discontinuous as well. And living systems as we know them are in a continuous environment that includes both determinism and indeterminism. Um, so I'm not really sure that you know I'm not convinced that uh, software-based artificial life incorporates enough possibility. The mm. possibility space is too small in my view. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Whereas in wet artificial life, the possibility space is the physical universe. And I well, haven't heard any really good arguments, uh, counter arguments to that. I do know that, that Tom Ray tends to argue that uh, the systems he's building are alive. Right. At that point, it becomes a, an issue of definition. So, you know, the distinguishing characteristics are not so well understood. We as humans can look at something and, and know whether it's alive or not by its behavior. Can we? But, mm, so far, <laughs> all of the systems that we have available that we can view, um, humans, biologists, particularly would say, that's a rock, that's an automaton, that's a living creature. Uh, that rock is actually a lithosphere containing uh, live bacteria. I'm afraid you're wrong. Well, also, no, no, that's a, there's a difference between the rock and any, uh, some, anything which you can magnify to view. So the argument you're giving is specious. 
Not really, because the rock itself is modified by the organisms and vice versa. It's a substrate. That, that, find... That's true. It might be a substrate, but that doesn't mean that it's living. It doesn't mean that it has metabolism. It doesn't mean that it reproduces. It doesn't mean that it respires. None of those things. Okay. So now we're exploring what your particular view of living means here. Okay. <laughs> let, let, let me take an extreme point of view. I had I had a minor operation under which I where I had to be put in uh, put out in total total anesthesia. Now my memory goes up to the point of feeling the drug coming into my veins, and then after the operation, I was suddenly awake. Okay, and it was a rather startling experience because, you know, I knew I I knew objectively what. Uh, what was supposed to happen to me in between, but uh, you remember the scenes in uh, Star Trek movies where uh, data gets turned off and on, and this is taken as uh, quote proof that he's not alive because he can be turned on and off. And uh, I had that uncanny experience that I was data because I could be turned on and off, and I was turned off and then right back on. Not all of the metabolism in your body was turned off. Of course not. Of just, course your, not. just your top but, level but, psyche. Right. No, uh, but that's not just my top level psyche, I suppose. Uh, but the the inner experience was very much of, gee, I can be switched on and off. And therefore, perhaps I am an automaton. But is it, that's not really any different than what happens when we go to sleep at night. I mean, essentially, some cognitive functions are put on pause, for lack of a better word, but there's so much. I, I agree. I think only the muscular functions are put on pause. I mean, I think biologically, our cognitive functions through sleep can't be considered to be on pause. It's only the fact that we're... Many of us are, not all of us, are paralyzed through sleep that stops us. But I, I, I want to interject my own view here because I think, particularly because we're all living in the U.S. currently, there are a number of experiences that I have in this country, uh, particularly coming from outside the U.S., which makes me wonder whether or not I'm alive, as, as William <laughs> discusses. And I think this whole perception with regards to strong and weak artificial life presupposes that there is some amazing thing called life that is in fact governed and and worshipped and we all as a community are, are you know are all moving towards this wonderful thing called life which we aspire to and which we respect and I feel the same way with regards to intelligence I have conversations with people that think very highly of this you know, this thing called the human brain, and then I put on shoes that are made by children, and I hear about the fact that there are between 20 or 40 million people, human beings in this country, that are below the poverty line. And I also have the amazing experience of interacting over the telephone with entities that I'm not clear whether they're alive or not. And my feeling is that there is so much information in my general experience with regards to the notion that there is nothing implicitly beneficial about being wet artificial life 
that I can't really see this notion between hard and soft mapping onto my own reality, and maybe that's where Tom Ray is coming from fundamentally. What interests me with regards to the, the strong and weak point is that this is a construction that was created philosophically maybe 20 years ago as a way of philosophers approaching the artificial life community and making something interesting out of it. And as an artificial life practitioner, and one of the great benefits of having Liz on the call last and having Liz on the call now is that I have the ability to actually interact with a philosopher and put the point out that there are amazing and exciting things going on in the artificial life community currently that are sticky and relate actually to deconstructing these old points, but also exploring really new and interesting philosophical points. So I guess we're returning to the previous show in that regard. William, you have these kind of experiences too. I mean, describe again your idea of the the central nature of being biologically alive and how it is important in this context? The essential nature of being biologically alive... Uh, well, let me rephrase this. The difference between being biologically alive and being alive in terms of a computation is... Um, well, any analysis you give is going to be based upon some definition. The definition I would give for a living system, uh, biological living systems, are that you have, and, and this goes back, strangely enough, to my probably science around the 6th to the 8th grade, which was you have reproduction, locomotion, respiration, characteristics like that in current parlance, we would talk about metabolism being a very important component, that you're built of the substrate of which the universe is constructed. That's the link back to artificial life. Um, biologists would, in general these days, and a lot of biologists that I've spoken with, um, would in general argue that it doesn't really matter what you're made of, it matters how you're made. But I'm not so convinced that that what you're made of is unimportant because the computational realm is discrete and discontinuous and deterministic, purely deterministic. In fact, the lack of determinism is often a source of error within computational environments. Um, it is the ability to predict the future that allows a programmer to create a program. That's how they work. And biological organisms do not really work that way. Mm -hmm. uh, I would argue that there's a certain amount of organization and structure. That's why embryology works the way it does, because otherwise at every... <clears throat> the, the discussion we're having in our group is about symmetry breaking. And if there weren't some organization to those symmetry breakings, then creatures within a single species would have a great variety of forms, and yet we don't. We have a general fixed form. And you might be larger, you might be smaller, you might have slightly different creases in your skin, but generally you have uh, eight fingers on two hands and two thumbs on two hands and so on and so forth. And uh, you are constructed out of material that has both 
deterministic and indeterministic behaviors. And it's continuous, except atoms are not, are not continuous, they're discrete. But the interactions that they engage in tend to have continuous forces involved. So the material out of which potential living systems, be they biological or artificial, are different. And if we're really going to have true artificial life, it will be produced in wetware. That's my view. I have a question about that because that's really helpful to me because um, your description maps onto John Searle, the philosopher of mine, you know, famous 1980 argument about how computers will never be as flexible or as intelligent or as cognitive or many different things as the human mind. And I think that in principle, I agree with him. I think that he's definitely on to something, and many, many, many people disagree with him, but I think that it's really hard to show that he's wrong philosophically. But, but the one sticking point that's always bothered me is this, um, although, yes, computer programmers are able to um, apply certain constraints and certain parameters so that, in a sense, whatever happens is, programmed. It is, it's predetermined. But then what about these interesting examples in artificial life programs where interesting behavior emerges? And according to the programmer himself or herself, it is surprising or it's unexpected. What would you say about instances That like just that? means they didn't understand their program that well. And by the okay. way, I will point out two interesting things about computers. One of them gets back at semiotics. It is interesting that a computer is able to perform all possible computations simply by virtue of its construction. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to argue that um, by putting all of these mechanical or electrical parts together, I at the same time account for every possible computation that can be performed. Mm -hmm. There's one other thing about what programmers do. Programmers start with a machine that can perform all possible computations and they pare it down. The act of writing software is one of carving off chunks of the possibility space that you are not interested in. Mm -hmm. You do not design yeah. it um, so much as um, partition it. Um. Uh William, that's, that's like the old argument about uh, the sculptor working on a stone and turning it into a sculpture. Uh, yeah. Does the sculpture exist inside the stone before uh, the sculpture? Turing says yes. Turing says yes. Can, can, can I argue on all the points that have been raised so far? Um, I'd like to start with the idea of, of, of the embryo and the digits for a start. I have a, a friend in Australia who's a very talented jazz trumpeter who has no thumbs, and I was born with an extra toe on one foot. I think that's the first point I'd like to start with. The second point is with regards to this notion that what programmers do is implicitly related to touching a computer. And I think the examples given could also be done with regards to lawyers, politicians, economists, a wide variety of folk that interact with systems and try to apply constraints. 
Other Other systems may be computational, but that doesn't give me a point. No, I know. Here we're fundamentally arguing about what it is to be computational. I want to take final issue with regards to that point because I think what we are doing in software is not, in fact, analogous to stonework. What happens with regards to the way hardware is designed is that it's not that the software channels down what the hardware has done. It is that the software needs to actually find new ways of exploiting and optimizing and, in fact, can increase the power of aspects of the hardware through elements of design and perhaps other things. So the idea that what you do is you start with a Turing machine that you are in fact, reducing down doesn't mesh with the kind of experiences that I've had dealing with hardware engineers in terms of writing software from it. It is not something where we are concatenating in writing software. We are, in fact, lazing in the hardware and producing something which is far more than what is created in the hardware. It's a concept oh, of just salt, which Turing, doesn't... Turing would 100% argue against that. The fact exactly. of the matter is that, that, you know, the basic Turing theory is that the machine can perform all computable, can compute all computable computations. Certainly. Period. Certainly. And it starts off with that capability regardless of what anyone does after the fact. But... Within contemporary vector processing, even, that paradigm is broken. No, now you're just talking about throughput issues. The paradigm hasn't changed. You haven't added, by parallelization, a computation that couldn't be performed before. In fact, all computations, whether they're P or NP, can be performed. The question is, how long do you have to wait for the answer? NP problems are simply intractable because of their uh, their overall complexity, but it does not mean that they can't be computed. In theory. In theory, they can all be computed. The issue is how long do you have to wait? Hmm. Hmm. That's the only issue. How long do you have to wait? And the efficiency of coding is all about not having to wait longer than is necessary. But it isn't a property of the hardware, nor is it a property of the construction of the software. No, it, the property of the hardware is that it can compute all computable computations. End of story. So you're removing the time characteristic because you say that the time characteristic doesn't actually affect the software? It just takes I didn't say that. that. I said it doesn't affect the machine. The Turing machine can compute all computable computations. Now you're going to take the notion of a Turing machine and implement it into physical example. And when you do, you impose additional limitations such as on the von Neumann serial processor, it can only perform one addition or one subtraction or one multiplication or one division or one test at a clock tick. And parallelization is all about being able to perform more of those operations per clock tick. Certainly from my own experience, the notion that you can move things to an infinite possibility in time 
eliminates it from practical notions of computation. So whilst I agree that if you want to extend the time infinitely and then require another set of things that require an infinite wait until the computation occurs and then acquire another set that requires an infinite wait until the com computation occurs. Now we can use a simple example, Trey TSP. The traveling salesman's problem can be solved for small numbers of cities. The more cities you add, the longer it takes to come up with an answer. We're not arguing that you can construct a problem which will be difficult on contemporary processing. The issue is with regards to the interaction that hardware and software has. And the point that I was making was that you can construct hardware which without the right software, you will get the chiseling effect that you're describing. But with the right software, you get performance improvements which could not just exist with the raw hardware. There are things in a practical sense that in contemporary computing that break the Turing metaphor. But moving away from that, I mean, if we, if we want to return or take this offline, it's not really, it is potentially a bio-related discussion, but I wanted to really concentrate more on weak and strong with regards to A-life. Well, well, that's fine. The arguments are fine about whether you're, you know, what your topic is, but you made a specific critical error in describing a computational system. Well, no, the difference is that I'm talking about the difference is that I'm talking about real-world examples where the time cycling has meaning in the computation, and you're saying that in certain circumstances it's feasible to wait a near infinitely long time in order to have the feedback loop in order to comply with your definition associated with Turing computation. I mean, that's the issue.